You may be seated. Thank you, sir. Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 8, continuing on in the Pentecostal handbook. Today we're going to see the spread of the church to Judea and Samaria as a result of Jewish persecution in Jerusalem. Philip, one of the first seven deacons, is used in a mighty way on two separate occasions, reminding us that God can still excuse me, build his church no matter the circumstances. We've already learned that Stephen has been stoned, and from that the church now is being spread out. And there's going to be at least three controversies, if not more, answered in today's text. And so, Jared, would you do me a favor and get the board for me and just place it right here to my left. Thank you. We're going to, con- um, we're going to confront the controversy of baptism. Should it be in Jesus' name only or the Trinitarian formula that Jesus taught in Matthew 28? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is salvation something that you can never lose? Once you're saved, you're always saved, or is it conditional based upon faith and you can come out through unbelief? And number three, are the scriptures inerrant? And if they are, do we find the text in the eclectic text by those scholars who seem to pick which texts represent that historical period best, or do we trust the church in the ecclesiastical text? And so, as you can see to the right, or the second is the one I believe in each one of those scenarios. I believe in the baptism of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe once you're, uh, I believe you are saved conditionally by faith and you can leave through unbelief. And I believe that the inerrancy of the Scripture is found primarily and uh, specifically through the ecclesiastical texts, the texts that have been handed down to us through the church. Let's go now to Acts chapter 8 and see what happened right after Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7. And Saul approved of their killing. There is a misnomer, and I used to believe it, that Saul is turned his name is changed to Paul at his encounter, that this would be similar than Jesus, as Jesus changing a Simon's name to Peter. But this is not true. Actually, Saul is the same as Paul, but one is used for the Roman citizenship, and the other one is, uh, uh, Paul rather, is, is used for his Roman citizenship, and Saul is the biblical word, as you see in the Bible, Saul. And so he just used these two names, kind of like you may have a name Miguel or Michael, Oscar, I don't know if that translates to English. I know Jose does and Joe. Uh, But this, it's not a big change in name. I just want to tell you that because sometimes preachers will say after he got saved, he became Paul. No, it just shows that he is using that name and, and Luke uses that name. And there may be other reasons for that, but there's not a name change by Jesus given to Paul or to Saul. It's just literally just two uses in that culture. One was the usage among the Jewish people, Saul having the biblical context of King Saul, and then Paul being the usage of his name in the Roman context, okay? So Saul approved of their killing of him. So he's not saved yet here, obviously. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That is a confirmation of what Jesus taught in Acts 1.8, that you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Persecution now is the catalyst of the gospel being spread. Now, what I want you to notice here is that the apostles are not staying be 
because they are cowards. Uh, They are staying because they are courageous. And once again, those who are leaving are not leaving because they are cowards. They are leaving because they are courageous. Now, I do believe the persecution was a catalyst to say, we just can't stay here because if we stay here, we could all die and the message will not get out. That's how I believe they saw the persecution. I don't believe they were scaredy cats, in other words. I believe those who stayed were staying in boldness, going, you can kill us. We're still going to keep preaching right here in Jerusalem. And the ones who went weren't like, oh, they're coming after us. They're trying to kill us. No, they were going saying, we better get this message out before we all die in one place. So they were courageous. Verse number two, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. It it is okay to mourn deeply for people. Even Jesus, knowing that he would raise Lazarus from the dead, mourned on his way there. And we understand that we will see our brothers and sisters again in heaven, but we still mourn here. And that's part of the curse of death as we feel that pain, that separation. That's literally what it is. It's a separation. But they mourned deeply, did not stay in a pity patty party, went out, whooped the devil, raised up 10 more disciples in Stephen's place. Amen. And that's what Stephen would have wanted. And that's the same thing with me. If I die on a car accident in a car accident on the way home, you come wearing your best party outfit to my funeral, buy a $100 banner, put it over my casket, thank you, Jesus, you know, because I've made it. I'm so happy that I'm in heaven, and I want you to be happy for me. But it's okay if you mourn deeply a little bit. Uh, but that's what they did. But Saul began to destroy the church. So Saul is angry at the church. He's a Jewish believer. Uh, he's a, a a follower of the law of Moses, a Jewish man through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the tribe of Benjamin, and he's upset because he sees the church as a cult, and he doesn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, so he thinks it's his duty to start persecuting them. And what we'll, we'll see is the, the heaviest persecution in the book of Acts is from the Jewish people, but then the Jewish people get ransacked by Rome around 70 AD, and then from that point forward all the way up until the Const- Constantine's conversion in, in uh, th- early 300s, uh, the greatest persecution is from the Romans. And uh, right around the time of 60 AD is when it starts to change, and that's when uh, uh, Jerusalem starts to get heavily persecuted. So Christians and Jews started getting it around that time, and then, like I said, Jerusalem gets destroyed around 70 AD. But uh, it's the Romans who really turn on Jews and Christians, and uh, that's how Paul is killed. He's killed in 60 AD by Nero, and Nero's the one who really invented the Roman candle, impaling people, setting them on fire, putting them on the streets. Uh, he would actually even do this at parties. This is, he was a psychotic man. He's known even among the wicked uh, rulers of Rome as being a psychopath. He was just a whole nother level of demonic and crazy. So Saul begins to destroy the church, but uh, he, he doesn't just look for them in public. He actually now goes from house to house, and he starts to drag off the men and women and put them into prison. And this is happening today right now in North Korea. This is happening today in China. This is happening today in other communist places and Islamic places. Communism and Islam are the two greatest uh, enemies of Christianity right now. And if you want to consider North Korea not communism, you could say it's like fascism or something like that. But uh, very similar beliefs to communism and how it's being run. But if you want to be specific, it might be more like fascism. But those are the greatest enemies of the church even in our time, uh, China being communist. And of course, we know the Middle Eastern nations, the ones that are Islamic, dragging them from their houses. I mean, he was brutal. He was vicious. He was even taking the women. And so that meant the children were, were left, you know, alone. Someone else had to care for them. 
Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And that confirms what Mark uh, 16.20 said is that uh, they will go out. uh, He said Mark ends his gospel by saying they went out and preached the word of God everywhere. And the Lord worked with them confirming his word with the signs that follow. And so we see that Luke understands that. And so Luke takes that same language and applies it to his historical account here that they went out and preached everywhere they went. That's an important concept because that has to be what we do now. That's how the church spreads. Before there was ever news, before there was ever radio, Twitter, all of these things, hashtags, the gospel spread by word of mouth. So you need to preach the gospel wherever you go. Amen? That's one of the reasons why I wear this shirt wherever I go, because it's a great opportunity for me to preach the gospel. Verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now watch, all the way up until this point, it's been the disciples, it's been the apostles, which eventually that office is going to become the elders. They've been doing all the work. They've been doing all the teachings. They've been accredited with all the signs and wonders that God's been doing through them. But it's no coincidence that now after the ordination of the deacons, the the book of Acts shows you what they were doing now too. Stephen goes out and preached signs and wonders, apologetic. He's rocking the Jewish people. Boom, he dies. But we don't die. We multiply. Now Philip keeps preaching. And now Philip is seeing signs and wonders, preaching the word of God. And so it shows you how powerful they were in their mentorship and their discipleship. It wasn't about checking off a census or clicking a box, you know, checking a box going, I'm a Christian. It it was about them being disciples of disciples that were making disciples. So when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs uh, he had performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Once again, confirming what Jesus said, these signs would follow. Demons would get cast out. They would speak in new tongues. They would lay their hands upon the sick, and they would be invincible. All this is happening right here. All this is happening. You're going to see the boom shakalaka speaking in tongues happen just in a few verses. But you see demons getting cast out, you see the sick being healed, and you see um, uh, the sick being healed, demons getting cast out, and people speaking in tongues. And then Mark says they'll pick up deadly serpents, and they'll drink poison, and won't hurt them. And once again, that just means that they'll have miraculous power. It doesn't mean they can't die, but they won't die until it's God's time. And we'll see that like in the life of Paul. He gets bitten by a snake, and then he throws it off, and it's a poisonous snake that all the people know about, and he doesn't die. And so now they know there's the power of God. We're not supposed to go up somewhere in the Appalachian Mountain and start drinking strychnine and handling rattlesnakes, okay? That's not the command is to go look for it, to go do it. What it's saying is you will be powerful in your life, and God will protect you, so don't be afraid. And how do I know that? Because Jesus said you shall uh, have power over scorpions and all the power of the enemy, if you remember that. So he uses that same terminology, but this time with scorpions. And it's also, I believe, in the book of Luke. Look up that reference for me. Show have power over scorpions and the things of the enemy. And so that's the understanding there of what's happening. This is being fulfilled. Verse 8, so there was great joy in the city. Let me just read verses 4 through 8 so you can hear it all together. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, proclaimed proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. And did you find it? Luke chapter, Luke 10, 19. Would you read it out for me? 
As, there, as he's getting that ready, you can look here to the biblical map. I have this up here for, for you. Some of you are taking the class on Bible geography. It's in my notes. You can look at it there. Basically, you just have Jerusalem kind of being the center of their world at that time. And if you go north, you go to Samaria. It's a region, and then there's actually a city named Samaria. So it's like New York State, and then there's New York City. That's a way to think about it. And then Judea is just a region, and there isn't actually a city called Judah or Judea. Okay? Read it loud. Nice and loud. Thank you. Power over serpents and scorpions. That's why I make that correlation there. It's not something we're doing as a magic trick. It is an example of the enemy's power to try to kill you. And, and Jesus said we have power over that, and that's the same thing that he meant when he was talking in Mark. But Jesus always has multiple meanings in what he's saying. Uh, and, and, and I do believe this was a prophetic thing. And so we do see that the snake literally jumped on Paul and tried to kill him with, by, by biting him, and it didn't kill him. And then it is believed through church history that they tried to poison John, and it didn't kill him. So we see literally that became a prophetic thing that actually happened. Okay, let's keep going on now. Verse 9, now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city, talking about Samaria, and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Now, this is a question that we don't quite know at this time. Was he a legitimate witch or uh, uh, some kind of a sorcerer with demonic power doing the great signs? Something similar to what we saw with the magicians during the time of Moses, a demonic counterfeit? Or is this guy a magician playing tricks, something like you would see in Vegas? We don't know, but we do know through other parts of the Bible that you can have power through demonic sources, okay? So he might have been using it demonically. And then we know in ordinary times you can do tricks, you know, say like here's my thumb, it's coming up. You know, you could do illusions, you know. So we don't know right there what's going on. You can assume one way or the other, and I don't think it's really going to change the context very much. We do know demonic power is real and demons were getting cast out. Maybe some demons got cast out of him. And that would play really nicely into that assumption to believe that his sorcery was a legitimate power of Satan, and then he gets delivered and uh, spirits leave him. But I always like to leave that as an option because it doesn't say much about what he was doing, and it doesn't say the origin of where it was coming from. So I like to leave the, the assumption, I like to leave it as an assumption or as a best idea, you, you know, not something that we can just say concretely. We know that he had the power of Satan in him. Okay, let's look at verse 11. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Okay, now this is going to get us into the controversy of baptism and once saved, always saved. So hang on here. They're going to both come up together, and then we're going to go to the board. I'm going to go to the audience, and hopefully you guys are going to have this on point today because we did discuss this. Even though we lost the feed, we did discuss this, okay? So they get saved, including Simon. Now Simon himself, verse 13, believed and was baptized. You only baptize believers. And he followed Philip everywhere 
astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And the fourth controversy, we could just talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I should have put that in there. So there's four controversies. Now let's talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Believe it or not, Oneness Pentecostals who deny the Trinity and believe you have to speak in tongues to be saved are strange bedfellows with the Baptist or non-charismatic. And since the Baptists are the largest version of non-charismatic uh, denomination, we'll use them as the example as our point. They are strange bedfellows here because they both interpret the passage as this. The Holy Spirit had not been given yet for regeneration. They both believe that the apostles had to come lay their hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit to be born again. They don't believe the Holy Spirit regenerated them yet. That's why they had to come and impart the Holy Spirit. But we know that this is not true. Regeneration even happened prior in the book of John before Jesus even ascended when he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. At that point, they were regenerated. How do we know that? Because when Jesus talks in Acts, the Holy Spirit being poured out, the promise of the Father, it is not never equated with salvation, not one place in Acts chapter 1 verse 2. The entire context of Acts chapter 1 and 2 is endowment of power to be a witness. He doesn't say, and when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you shall be regenerated. No, they were already regenerated at the resurrection. The new spiritual birth that John talked about is concluded and received at the end of John. The same one who breathed into us in the Garden of Eden in John chapter 1, through him all things exist. Without him nothing exists without him creating it. We know in him is life, and that life is the light of all mankind. That life was lost. Jesus comes to restore it, and at the resurrection, in his appearance to them before he ascends, he breathes on them, fulfilling what he had said in John chapter 3, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. So Acts is not talking about the Holy Spirit ever being given for regeneration. It's always for endowment of power. You shall, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on them. They speak in tongues, and they begin witnessing. They begin to get persecuted, the apostles, and I believe it's in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 4, thank you, and the house, they're, they're filled, and the house is shaken, and they go back out and preach the word of God boldly. Are you listening? So now, are they coming down to have what we now call a Samaritan Pentecost? Are there multiple Pentecosts? That's literally what the Baptist 
believe that there is a trickling effect of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. That Pentecost wasn't enough. Only those there that were present could be regenerated. So God had to do it again. And then he had to do it again in Cornelius' house. And then he had to do it again in Acts chapter 19 with John's disciples. And then now finally, from this point on, everybody just gets saved and regenerated when they believe. And we don't need to lay hands on them for salvation anymore. But for some strange reason, the book of Acts keeps having us get hands laid on us to be saved, to be regenerated. Is that true? No, that's not true. You don't baptize somebody unless they're saved. In the New Testament context, John, like I said, teaches salvation is being born again, regeneration. These people were regenerated. So when it says they had not received the Holy Spirit yet, what does it mean? They had not received the promise of the Father. They had not been endued yet with power. Okay? Now, the oneness Pentecostal makes the same mistake. But here's where they say, because they're right. If the Baptist is right, the Pentecostal is right. Because what is the evidence you receive the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts? You speak in tongues. So if the Baptist is right and that teaching is correct, that you have to have hands laid on you after being a confessor of Jesus Christ and even water baptized, if you then need someone to lay their hands on you to receive the Holy Spirit to be regenerated, well, then what's going to be the evidence that you just got saved? How are we going to know you got saved? You're going to do what? You're going to speak in tongues. So the oneness Pentecostal is actually truer to the context if the Baptist is right. But they're both wrong. This is not for regeneration. The apostles are not coming there so that they can have their spirit brought to life and brought to union with Jesus. That happened before Jesus even ascended to heaven. That's why they were baptized. They are regenerated. The language used here is the exact language that Jesus said, I, uh, John, baptized you with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, Acts chapter 1. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, the promise of the Father, you shall receive power to be my witnesses. That is what they are waiting for. That is why they come down. That's why they lay their hands on people. That is the secondary experience of the Holy Spirit, consequent to salvation. So now, where do we part ways with both of them? We say to the oneness Pentecostal, it is subsequent to salvation. I was saved before I spoke in tongues. And then we say to the Baptists, you're saved just like us, but now have you received the Holy Spirit? That terminology is biblical. They may say, well, I, I am regenerated, I'm saved, so you can't say have I received the Holy Spirit. No, because in the book of Acts, asking that question or saying it this way, because we'll see it asked by Paul in Acts chapter 19, is the biblical way of, of, of referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, saying, have you received the Spirit? So yes, technically you have been regenerated, but the biblical language is right there, very specific, that when the Holy Spirit comes on you, he will come on you in power and you will speak in other tongues. So we differ with the oneness Pentecostal saying, no, people can be saved without speaking in tongues, but then now we, we differ with the Baptists and say, after you're saved, you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in fire and speak in other tongues. It is the clearest way to understand the book of Acts. Let's just review it very quickly. Jesus breathes on them in the book of John. The power of regeneration is given now to the disciples. 
Now, from this point on, whenever anybody believes in Jesus, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the experience will all be the same. We'll all be regenerated instantly. That was the significance of it. Remember when God breathed into Adam and Eve? He didn't have to breathe into everybody after that. But after that, the spirit was given through procreation. Our soul was given to us through procreation. And now he breathes into the original disciples. Now the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit is given through the preaching of the gospel. Now you move into the book of Acts. He has his last, last final words. All John and Mark have these different things going on, but now Luke records the very, very last words before he ascends to heaven in the book of Acts. And what does he say? John baptized with water, but I'm going to baptize you now with the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing to do with salvation. Look through the whole book of Luke, same author, the gospel of Luke. The power of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with going out and being a living witness. He says, you're going to be baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit with fire. And then he says a little bit later on, this is the promise of my Father. Nothing to do with salvation again. What's the promise of the Father? Because um, Peter quotes it in Joel. You will be, uh, uh, Joel, Joel says, uh, on, on, upon all people I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy upon my sons and daughters. They shall dream dreams and have visions. You see, that's the promise of the Father. Come on. He says what it is in Joel when he preaches on Pentecost. And then what does Jesus finally say? When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses. Does everybody understand? Okay, so they're saved. They're sanctified. And now the apostles are coming down to get them filled with the Holy Ghost. Let's go. Verse 18. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, is there any service that a Baptist ever has that a magician or a witch doctor sorcerer would ever pay money for to have that experience, to entertain people? Come on. No, not at all. But if it happens similar to like it did on the day of Pentecost and people are having their, you know, we're laying hands on people and all of a sudden they're falling out or speaking in tongues or languages they've never learned and they start prophesying, telling other people's business or they start seeing the sick healed. How many now know you want to pay for that to use that for a wrong motive? So the evidence is here. This has nothing to do with salvation. This has to do with the power of God for the works of service, being a living witness. And let me say this to everybody here. It's not just about speaking in tongues. It's about being a living witness. But speaking in tongues is the evidence. It's the consistent pattern. This is the only place where it's not named. But we know that it must be similar to this experience if a magician and sorcerer wants to pay for it. And then from this point on, every other time, it literally says, they have tongues. Sometimes they'd have tongues, praise God, and prophesy. But it's always tongues as a part of the consistent pattern. That's why you'll meet other churches that'll be, um, they'll say like Church of God in Christ of prophecy. And they'll say prophecy is an evidence with tongues. And that's okay. That's all right. But the one that's the most consistent is tongues. But I believe with tongues comes prophecy. And that's why in the promise of Joel, it says they shall prophesy. And Paul even said prophecy is better for the people than tongues because no one understands the tongue unless it's interpreted, but the prophecy is for people. And so it's a wonderful thing to prophesy, but the initial sign, the consistent sign is tongues. And that's what we ask the Lord to do in us when we ask for the Holy Spirit is give us a language that we've never learned, that we can pray and communicate with Him, be endued with power, and be His living witness. 
And that is why we don't ordain elders or deacons unless they're full of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Just like the early church, they did not ordain the deacons unless they were full of the Holy Spirit. And by the language of Acts, what did full of the Holy Spirit mean? Now, I don't want it to be a a sense of making our Baptist brothers say, well, they're half of the Spirit. But if you listen even to the terminology, it is very specific that according to the apostles, you did not have the fullness of the Spirit unless you were speaking in tongues. That's just the, the way it is. I don't mean to offend anybody, but that is the truth. You need the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and you have to humble yourself. And I've prayed with a lot of people over the years, and I've gotten great advice from people like Pastor Grogan. You've prayed with people. There are two reasons that will keep you from being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's just two. Everybody listen to me. Just two. As you pray at the altars, don't overthink it. It's just two. Sin and unbelief. Sin and unbelief. You get the sin out, you start believing, you will be filled instantly. You'll be filled just like this. God is not waiting. Uh, You're not waiting for God. God is waiting for you. Check your heart. Unbelief manifests itself in many different ways, through fears, insecurities, lack of uh, self-awareness, all these things going on inside your life or whatever. You have to be honest with yourself and say, Lord, rid me of all unbelief and rid me of all sin because we always get filled. My children are filled. You know, you will get filled. I got filled at eight years old. When I got saved at my mother's kitchen table, I always say it like this. I got saved at the kitchen table and filled with the Holy Ghost at the couch. Because when I was on my knees and my dad was praying prayers of deliverance for me, it just came naturally. I just started speaking in tongues. I didn't even think about it. I didn't even hear my parents doing it. It just literally, the moment they laid hands on me, just, you know, I just started speaking in heavenly languages. Now, some people say, well, the experience of, uh, of Acts chapter 2 is known languages. Well, it's those who are first baptized in the Holy Spirit that can do both, heavenly languages, languages of angels, and languages of men. If you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, you won't do either. So I always say to them if they complain, you know, well, you, nobody understands you. Well, Paul said that, and nobody would understand me unless there's an interpreter. So that's going to be the standard in 1 Corinthians 14. They don't speak to men, but they speak to God. But every now and then, through a tongue, he can give the prophecy. The interpretation can come directly to the hearer because it will be a known language. Who's done that? Has Baptist done that? No, I've done that. I've done that with the Indian language. I have the testimony. I've read it to you during this class. So I know that God can use it as a known language, but predominantly it's an unknown language, and it's between me and God, and it's for the building up of my spirit so that I can be a living witness for the Lord. Okay, now we're going to run into our next controversy here which is after he wants to buy the Holy Spirit to do the baptism of the Holy Spirit with others, Peter says in uh, Acts 8.20, Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Now notice that language again, the gift of God, the Father's gift. Do you get it? Come on, brother, is this not clear or what? It is not regeneration. I mean, every possible way you can look at this. The Baptists and Oneness Pentecostals are strange bedfellows. They are both thinking this is for regeneration, and the authors of the Scripture are being as clear, especially Luke, as possible. This is not for salvation. You're trying to buy the gift, the promised gift of the Father. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, they're saved. They're sanctified. They're water baptized. They are who God said they are. But now they're boom shakalakin with the power of God. And you want to buy that and you can't and you're going to perish. Verse 21, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. The Bible talks about hearts. Who chooses the kind of heart we have? Do you choose it or does God choose it? 
The Bible says we choose the kind of heart we're going to have. God does not come in, knock you unconscious, drag you to the hospital, and give you a heart transplant without your permission. Somebody says, well, that takes away God's sovereignty. No, it doesn't. God is sovereign, and he said, out of his sovereignty, I give you a choice. I'm sovereign of my house. I can drag my kids into the bathroom and force myself upon them and brush their teeth, or I can give them a choice. I can start giving them blessings and curses. Are you listening? Come on, somebody. God does not determine the kind of heart we have. We determine the kind of heart we have. That's the parable of the sower. The one who has a hard heart is not hard because of God. It's because they've hardened their heart like Pharaoh, and then God gives them exactly what they want and lets the sun bake it like clay in the sun and change it from the hard heart they wanted to a totally brick heart and says, you don't want me, I'll show you what it's like without me. You can be reprobate. Or the heart that's shallow. It's not God's desire that some people have a shallow heart that they believe just for a time and then in persecution walk away. That's not God's desire. That's their desire to change and to love this world more than they love God as Demas did and forsook Paul, as he said. Or Hymenius and Alexander who, who shipwrecked their faith. Or Judas who hung himself. Now is God all-knowing? Yes, he knows this. And so no surprise comes to God. But just because I know the football game that's already happened doesn't mean I've made the football game happen. Now can God do that? Yes, God can make us robots if he wants, but he hasn't. God's in heaven. He can do whatever he wants. What pleases him, the psalmist says, is to give the earth to man. That's why when Satan, would you please not click that pin? Thank you. When Satan came to Jesus, he said, all of these kingdoms are mine. I can give them to you. That wasn't a lie. Why? Because Adam and Eve had been given dominion. Are you listening? And then the last heart, or excuse me, the third heart is a weedy heart. At any point, you can have weeds grow up in your heart. At any time, you can have your heart grow hard. At any time, your heart can become shallow in persecution. What kind of heart are you supposed to have? A heart that remains fertile and soft before God. Now, does that sound like the Bible, that you can choose the kind of heart that you want? Absolutely. Go to Hebrews chapter 3. The author of Hebrews uses the Israelite people as an example, and he says, see, uh, so rather, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, so as the Holy Spirit says, this is, by the way, a proof of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says he's not a force like Jehovah Witnesses teach. He's not uh, something less than God. He is God and speaks with the voice of God. The Holy Spirit says and who said in the Old Testament things? Jesus. But why does the Holy Spirit get the credit? Because the Holy Spirit gives voice to what Jesus is saying through the prophets. Jesus has always been the Logos, the Word, and the Holy Spirit has always been the transmitter, the Wi-Fi, the connection from what Jesus and the Father were saying to the people. Look at what he says. Today, if you hear his heart, uh, hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do you have a choice to whether or not you harden your heart? Yes, you do. Come on. Let me get some help here today. Do you have a choice to harden your heart, yes or no? Yes. Now, can God bake in your heart and let you get a harder heart than even what you thought you would have? Yes, that's called God's judgment. Just like you think it's bad right now, God can say it can get a whole lot worse. Trust me. Okay, God can hand you over to your sin and judgment. But listen to me. You choose whether or not you want to go down that path. And if you do, God will still use it for his glory. He used hardened heart Pharaoh for his glory. He used all the wickedness of the world for his glory. From Joseph's betray uh, brothers betraying him to the men who crucified Jesus, God had the game on lock. 
But he's not playing chess against himself. How impressive would it be for God to play the game of humanity like chess against himself? No. He plays chess knowing what your move is, and he still makes your move work for his move. That's the wisdom of our God. That's the awesomeness of our God. He is in control and can do whatever he wants, but he lets you have choice. That's why he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Through Joshua and then in Deuteronomy, blessings or curses, choose life. He always tells us what he wants us to choose, but he knows what we will or not choose, and he plans his plan accordingly. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tried me, tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. Whose fault was it that their hearts were going astray? Was it God playing them like a puppet? Or was it their choice with their heart to go astray? Their choice. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Oh, but that was just them. No, it's not. Watch the application now from the author of Hebrews, which I believe is Paul. Or at least one of his followers taking notes during his sermons. Or the third option, since I'll put it out there, one of his students, like Timothy Apollos or somebody that really had the theology of Paul down, maybe in a, in a humble way I'll say, like Jared could preach my theology in different words, but it would be the same understanding. And, of course, he would have the insight that God gave him. But I still believe this is a teaching of Paul here, my personal opinion. And in the, in the, uh, as we're going to get into some textual, textual stuff, it's going to get a little complicated in a minute. Not complicated, I should say. It's going to get more intricate. Uh, Hebrews was always in Paul's epistles. They always put Hebrews with all of Paul's epistles. So if I was to ask you in the early church, do you have Paul's epistles, you'd give me Hebrews with the rest of them. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Once saved, always saved is not true. And then other people try to change that language around. They say, well, if you're really saved, you'll stay saved. And they'll use the context, uh, they'll use the scripture of John out of context. First uh, John, they'll say, those who left us, left us were really not of us. So if you're, you're, you're in the church and you leave salvation, then you weren't really saved. That, that's not true. These people were really saved. People really backslid. You can't get a better example than Saul in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God came upon him. He prophesied, came out of his robe, went into his britches, and started just uh, prophesying everywhere, the Bible says. And then at a time when he kept having a sinful, unbelieving heart, the, the Spirit left him, and it was replaced by evil demonic spirits. And David had to come and play as a prophetic minstrel to calm his spirit. And the Spirit would leave when David was there and then come back. When he left, that's a whole nother message right there. People come to church, the, the spirits will subside, but then they leave and they come right back because they don't know how to be free. What happened here with Simon? Well, he got saved. Philip wouldn't have baptized somebody unless they were saved. And he might be in the prayer line about ready to receive the Holy Spirit, or he might have even received it. But then he wants to pay for it. What happened to his heart? He had, verse 23, for I see you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Hebrews 12, 15 says that the root of bitterness can defile many. What was he bitter over? What do you think he was bitter over? Come on, use your, use your imagination. Use your thoughts here. What do you think he was bitter over? Say it again. That they wouldn't sell it to him as part of it. Go a little bit deeper. Go back into his past. Yes. Exactly. See, you're on point, babe. I love you. 
Put that together with your boy, and you guys become a little like a like a squad here, man, because you guys got some stuff going on. Exactly right, Joe B, because he probably was bitter that he lost the crowd, that he couldn't manipulate this now. Now everybody was powerful. See? He's not the great man of power anymore, even if it was magical or tricks or demonic. He's not the only one. Now everybody can cast out demons. Now everybody can speak in tongues. He's bitter. He can't be the one-man show anymore. And isn't that what a lot of preachers want to be now? They want to be the one-man show, and that's exactly the opposite of the Bible. The Bible is sons and daughters, handmaidens, servants, children. Everybody can do this. Nobody takes credit for the power flowing through them. The faucet doesn't take credit for the water. Are you listening? And the machine sorting the gold doesn't take credit for the gold. And the furnace, you know, that heats it up to burn away the dross around the, the coal for the diamond doesn't take the credit. It's all there within it, but these situations reveal it. And so this revealed his heart. It revealed his heart. It revealed that his heart was not right. Now, somebody may say, well, see, this proves he was never saved. Well, no, you're going back to now saying Philip baptized a false convert. Well, they'll say, well, mistakes can happen. No, that's not what the story is telling us. It literally says, look at the language right here. Look at the language and tell me if there's literally any way to say that he wasn't saved. It says, Simon himself believed. If Simon himself believed does not equal an exegesis, someone became a Christian, then there are no Christians in the Bible because someone believing does not equal Christianity, becoming a born-again Christian. Do you understand? If Simon himself believed can be considered a false convert, then we're all false converts. The language is so clear. Not only does it say Simon himself believed, but it said Samaria accepted the word of God. Going back to the words of Jesus, accepting the word. When it talks about in the, the parable of the sower, the accepting is unto salvation. The three seeds are saved. The shallow seed is saved. They accepted it. The one in the weeds is saved. The one on the rock, it is saved. All except the rocky one. The rocky one, does. the word never grows. The seed never grows. Okay, so let's get to understanding here. It says they had not received the Holy Spirit, had not come on, in, on any of them because they had been simply baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, now this goes into this other controversy of baptism. Now the oneness Pentecostals just have an issue here. They just they keep getting it wrong. The Baptists only have one thing wrong. Well, technically two. What do the Baptists have wrong? The Baptists have wrong what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They think these are equivalent experiences to being regenerated. We know that's not true, correct? And then what else do they have wrong? What else do they have wrong? No, no, down with the Holy Spirit. What else do they have wrong? They have the wrong view of the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit is coming, the gift of the Holy Spirit for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's the other thing they have wrong? I just spent a lot of time talking about it. Think about the last thing I just talked about. Once saved, always saved. Exactly. They have once saved, always saved. O-S-A-S. -S. Okay. Now, what does the oneness Pentecostal have wrong? Oneness Pentecostal has wrong. The baptism of the Holy Spirit equaling salvation. That's wrong. Remember, they both have this wrong. They both think the baptism of the Holy Spirit equals salvation, right? What else do they have wrong? They think that you have to be baptized in Jesus' name only. Now, why do they do this? 
because they start backwards. They were a part. They're not an old organization. They were a part, like us, Trinitarian believers of the early Pentecostal movement in America. And they're going from the book of Acts in Jesus' name. They're seeing this here, most of them ignorant, not knowing what that means under the authority of Jesus. And now they go back to the baptism formula of Matthew and they say, oh, if it says name singular, baptized in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that must mean in Jesus' name, equivalent to Acts, that must mean Jesus is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see how they went backwards? Instead of starting with Matthew going, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not changing. That's, just, that's obvious. We're doing that. But now when we look at Luke, let's understand what they meant, what Luke meant when he said they were baptized in the book of Acts here, what it means that they were baptized in Jesus' name. What does that mean? And what is the answer, folks? That took us 20 minutes last time. What is the answer to this problem right here? Close teachings under the authority and the teachings of Jesus. And what would be the example that we can give them in the book of Acts that shows this is exactly how the author meant it. He was not changing the literal formula. He was saying when you baptize someone in Jesus' name, it means in Jesus' teachings and in Jesus' authority, which it would include the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, because that's what Jesus taught. That was Jesus' baptism. So if I was baptizing you in Jesus' name under his authority, just taking name out there, saying Joe's authority, Jesus' authority, meaning name, Joe's name carries Joe's authority, I would baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can I show them in the book of Acts? That's what it means. Come on, Jackie. Show you how much I love right answers in this Bible chapel. I'm giving you all the cash I have on me right now. Let's give it up for Jackie. I'm giving her $30. I can't even tell you. I can't even tell you how much that means to me, Jackie. I know you don't do it for the money, and it may not happen again anytime soon, but I will tell you this. But I will tell you this. There is no other way. There is no other way for me to show you how proud I am that somebody understood that. And I don't want to start shaming and embarrassing the rest of you. I think that will just speak for itself. You guys heard it for 20 minutes. There should have been all, everybody's hands going up. It should, have been an, it should have been a fight to see who can answer that. Let's go now to the scripture that she referenced, which teaches us how Luke refers to authority and teaching according to baptism. When Paul runs into the people who were John's disciples in Acts 19.1, we see, once again, we're going to get the proper understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit here. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You see, he's now talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is his language. Do you guys understand that? They believed. They were followers of Jesus, and we're going to learn here in just a moment, followers of John. They understood that John said, this is the one it's about. So whenever Jesus raised from the dead and breathed, all of these people got regenerated instantly. It instantly happened in their lives, just like how it happens today. No one had to lay hands on them. The Holy Spirit regenerated them. They were now in union with God. 
but they had not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which comes through the laying on of hands. That's what you receive through the church. That's what Paul says, I imparted spiritual gifts to you when he talks about Timothy. So that's the language there. So a lot of times Baptist people get offended and they say, hey, I got the Holy Spirit. Just because I don't speak in tongues, don't say I don't have the Holy Spirit. And I'll say, no, this is the language of the Bible. You have the regeneration. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit, but you do not have the baptism. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is equated with that question. Don't get offended at me. Talk to Paul. Talk to the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit. They said, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So they must have left Jesus at some point before the, the teachings came out, like John records in 14, 15, and 16. So Paul asked them, what, uh, then Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? Now, what do they reply? John's baptism. So if Luke would have been recording John doing baptisms, it would say, and they were baptized in John's name. They were baptized under the authority of John. That's what he would have said. Probably it wouldn't be that different to us to say by the authority of or name for us. It sounds similar, but they would know. Uh, I mean, excuse me, it could sound different to us, but they would know the context of what that meant. So we can't divorce this from the context. And then on hearing this, uh, he told, uh, excuse me, he, Paul, um, Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Okay. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And so you can see why good churches may want to add prophecy to this. They may say, here's the clearest indication of what happens when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. You get hands laid on you, you speak in tongues, you prophesy. prophesy. So they may want to add the other one there. But we don't see prophecy in every situation. We don't see prophecy in the situation in Cornelius' house specifically. But we see tongues in Acts chapter 2. We see tongues in Cornelius' house, which we'll be getting to. And then we see tongues here in Acts chapter 19. So... The Baptist is wrong about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit in regeneration, but not in the sense of empowerment. And the language used of the New Testament, I don't apologize for. Have you received the Holy Spirit, Baptist? I'm going to ask you just like Paul did. Have you received the gift of the Father, okay? And then here, they are wrong on once saved, always saved. They think that this man was a false convert. Simon was a false convert. But no, he's a true convert. He had just backslid. His heart had changed. Where is the oneness Pentecostal wrong? They're wrong in their saying that baptism equals salvation. That is not correct. You can be saved before you're baptized. You baptize the saved, actually. And if you look at Matthew chapter 28, it says it clearly. It says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I baptize disciples, don't I? That's who I baptize. And then they're wrong about Jesus' name only, baptism in water. And because of that, they deny the Trinity, which is the third thing, which makes them now an official heretical movement, damnable. And it, it's very serious, okay? You deny the nature of God. God may have mercy on false beliefs that they don't know about or something like that. It's, it's hard when you get into these kinds of things. Uh, but when you deny full on the Scripture and, and you reject what people are teaching you, and then you go so far to call our doctrine satanic, et cetera, uh, it's, it's just a terrible place to be. Don't, don't fellowship with oneness Pentecostals. Preach to them. Tell them the way of God. Don't share their videos. Be careful when you see these people online. 
online. We discovered another one. And you know what? Just know that God uh, can save them. They can come out of that. But it's truly a false belief system. They have a different Jesus because they have a Jesus that they say is the Father. And that is not the Jesus of the Bible. In the Bible, Jesus is not the Father. You know, So we have to pray for them. And so because of their wrong, and I believe this, it's because of their wrong understanding of Acts that they went back and reinterpreted the Trinity wrong. Does everybody get that? Okay. We took on three controversies, baptism, once saved, always saved, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me just stop right here and ask if you have any questions about these things. Any questions? Let me read the last part here. Verse 24, then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said will happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And then it says, now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. He started out on his way. He met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandak, uh, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was studying, uh, rather was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And then here I have an example of the journey that he made. Uh, so you have him starting off um, in Jerusalem. Persecution comes. Philip goes up to Samaria. Uh, then he comes back down through Jerusalem to Gaza. And then he gets a miracle journey to Azotus and then continues up here to Lydia and Caesarea. And we'll talk about that transportation gift in just a moment. Any questions about the controversies? Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, yes. does. You're, ask, you're asking about false conversions or false motives. There's two separate questions there. Number one, I believe, which I think I hear you asking, and I'll just clarify it. What does First John mean? They were of us and then left us. My answer to that is they were false converts. They, they left us and they were not of us. It's, it's a true thing. You can have fake people all the time. And I possibly could baptize uh, them. That is correct. I could make that mistake. I don't think that's what's happening in Samaria. Why? Because, number one, it doesn't say that. It says he believed. It doesn't say he has false intentions, which gets to the second question. Can we be saved with bad motives or things in our heart? No, you have to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to be saved. But can you have things off that God can change? Yes. But to be truly saved, you have to give God everything you have. It's that simple. He gave God everything he had. And that's why I was going back to the parable of the sower. You can be saved for a short time and instantly go back to something else, like a dog to its vomit. That's what Peter says. That can happen, and it does happen. And so that is not to say they had a wrong motive when they got saved. No, because you can't get saved unless you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it says he did. And it, so it doesn't say there was a false conversion there. And I don't think Philip would have, would have done that because I think Philip had a special gift at that point. And this is a gift, by the way, of discerning of spirits. 
And so it sounds like there was literal revival. Like, for example, when it says 3,000 were added to the church, I don't believe like 20 of them were false converts. God is literally saying, I know there's 3,000 that got saved here. And when Philip is baptizing them and saying, these are the ones, and it's accounted in Scripture, it goes to a different level than what could happen to me in this church. It's, a, it's, a, the, it's like the, the historicity could be one way or the other, false convert or real convert. But now the Holy Spirit, Scripture, inspired Scripture, tells us what it is. That's what I'm saying. And so maybe to clarify my point, I shouldn't say so much that uh, Philip would have, uh, uh, you know, had the discerning of Spirit maybe adding more things into his life. Maybe I can just say this more clearly and say Luke led by the Holy Spirit when he authored the words Simon himself believed. That settles it here. Does everybody get that? The context settles it here. This cannot mean anything else other than that. Now, then when it says accepted the word of God, I believe this would be upon apostolic testimony, and Philip would be included, and I believe they did have discerning of spirits, and at that point, they are only baptizing those that they knew had accepted the word of God, okay? And so we're doing the pen thing again. Thank you so much. God's going to set you free from that, okay? So go on. Does that answer your question? Yeah, and so and to go back to that, yes, I believe John is talking about false conversions. I give I give the Baptist credit. Yeah, you're right. That's that's what it means. And where do we see that lived out? We see that lived out in the uh, in the post Nicene Council Church when Christianity is accepted in in the Roman Empire. Is there's now an influence? Uh, there's a benefit to become a Christian, and there's all this influx of all these cultural Christians coming in, and most of them are false converts. So yes, I believe in a false convert. But by these two phrases, I cannot. The first one, Luke himself says that Simon himself believed. This is inspired. I trust Luke now that that phrase means exactly. What it always means, they're saved, and then they accepted the word of God. I believe that this is upon the apostolic testimony, including Philip's. Okay, so I cannot be true to this scripture and apply that there. Okay, yes. Yeah, it says them in my version, which probably is more accurate. Are you just inserting Samaritan? Okay. Yes, that's a great question. For the laying on of hands, how important is it? It's an apostolic tradition, and it should be kept. So it's very important. Apostolic tradition should be kept. We're not um, opposite, excuse me, we're not um, obstinate towards apostolic, no, we're not against, let's use the word against. We're not against apostolic tradition and just trying to be obstinate, obstinate to the Roman Catholic Church to just be like sassy with them. What we're saying to the Roman Catholic Church is you have so many traditions that y'all made up. Let's just get back to apostolic traditions. That's an apostolic tradition, laying out of hands for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Can it happen without it? Absolutely. It can happen without it. But what is the tradition? What are traditions meant to do just in general? Traditions are meant to set patterns. So that's how we're supposed to pattern our lives. Uh, If you don't have oil, can you still pray for somebody that's sick? Absolutely. But what is the tradition? Calling the elders together. Can you pray for somebody if you're not an elder? Yeah, Philip's doing it. But what is the tradition? Calling together the elders, having the oil. These are traditions. Now then you have to um, learn to differentiate between apostolic traditions and cultural traditions that apostles had. So apostles had traditions, but not all of them are apostolic traditions. And that's where sometimes Paul says, I'm speaking just as Paul here. And I think some of the things that he's doing when it comes to women are uh, um, 
cultural traditions because I see them change. I can make Paul look like he's contradicting himself real quick. He says to the Galatians not to circumcise, uh, be circumcised. If they do, they lose everything, but then he circumcises Timothy, right? Paul then says, I don't allow a woman to speak. And Timothy, she has to be quiet and silent, but in Corinth, she can at least pray as long as her head is covered. What's going on now? These are not contradictions. These are cultural applications of the apostles. They're applying cultural norms. Uh, they're uh, using the Bible uh, with, uh, within the culture the context of culture, and they're trying not to be uh, synchronistic. They're trying not to blend the culture into the gospel, but they're trying to let the culture um, uh, influence uh, Christ's culture, change the worldly culture. And another one is, is the same one. He says to, uh, he writes to Philemon, set Onesimus free as a slave. And then he says in another place, all the servants keep serving your masters. So which one is it? Do we set them free, or do we uh, say keep obeying your masters? Well, it's both and. Where we can, we set them free, treat them as brothers, obviously, and give them their freedom. But where they owe debts and things are not beneficial or, or, or where it's not the right time, we're going to do it like this. But still, even then, it wasn't racial slavery. It was based mostly on economics, okay? So those are three main things, his, his, his dealing with servants and slaves, his issue with circumcision, and then his, his dealing with women would be three examples of apost apostles having traditions but not apostolic traditions, just in that sense. I would say one is apostolic uh, use of culture. And I can do the same thing here. By the way, I could do the same thing here and put it in our Bible. Laws. Uh, I no longer want the women to talk in church if they got out of hand. I could say that. And the women, if they trusted me as their apostle, they would say, amen, pastor, we're not going to talk while we're in services. There's been some crazy stuff going on. And I can say the same thing to our staff. I don't want you guys wearing earrings. I don't want this. You see, if I was making a bunch of codes, I could start dealing with cultural things. It doesn't mean every time and always. It doesn't mean every time and always. And that's why you would make Paul look like he's contradicting himself because he's not doing things every time and always. He's not every time and always setting servants free. He's not every time and always not circumcising. He's not every time and always telling women to be quiet. Does that make sense? So what should be the tradition that we carry on the, the, into our culture is the ones that we see have the, um, the application into uh, the things of God, the things that would be unchanging, I would say. So uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit's never changing. This is not an issue of women having certain rights and servants having certain rights, etc. Uh, this is not a circumcision thing that can change. We're not even in a Jewish culture anymore. Uh, this is something that's always the same. We're always baptizing. We're always seeing the Holy Spirit be poured out. So we keep that tradition. Amen? Okay, let's just move on. Now it says um, Philip is taken down south here. He meets the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. And by the way, let me, uh, let me just tell you this real quick here. I said down south. Did he head south? Yeah, go south. Okay, let me just share it to you right quick. This would be great for uh, people from the continent of Africa or trace their history there. Um, black was never wrong in the Jewish history. This happened, and I have to always say this because I need to tell history. Black... The exploitation of African slavery started with Muslims, then Europeans joined in, but it was Muslims who started taking the black slave trade and exploited it based on their color, okay? And then Europeans joined in on that. So what had existed in Africa before Islam, before 700 AD, was black tribal slave, uh, African tribal slave, like it existed everywhere else. Uh, in the ancient culture, when we're talking about servants and slaves, guys, we're not talking about Kuta Kinta here. We're talking about Romans owning other Romans. We're talking about uh, people, uh, Jews having, not owning, but uh, 
having servants as other Jews. I mean, we're talking about people of the same culture having each other as servants, and they were not chattel slavery. They were not treated as animals. They were not beaten. They had rights, okay? Many of them chose to be in that position. They were in a certain economic state, and it would work better for them, okay? So we have to untie and unpack so many things, uh, untie and untangle so many things from the past American European slavery when we even read this, okay? Uh, But the next thing that I just want you to understand is that he's Ethiopian and he's a Jew. That's not even a problem. Moses married an Ethiopian. The problem with that is that she was an Ethiopian and not a Jew. But by this time, there are Ethiopian Jews. Probably started from the time that Moses started getting himself a woman that was from Ethiopia. Because once he went black, he didn't go back, you know. Now, we don't even know if Moses was black. We don't even know. We don't even know skin color because it was so non-important to them. All we know is just regions. And so if Moses, let's just say traditionally speaking, if Moses is a a, a common Middle Easterner, you know, the color of sand, and he marries an Ethiopian, and just think of a dark-skinned African person, and they have babies, or where are they coming out? Beautiful, right? Right there, and then you have multiculturalism, boom. I mean, it's... It just didn't matter. I just can't say that enough. And when you see here, uh, you know, even the Simon the Cyrene, which is a part of Africa. Look up Cyrene. I believe it's in Africa as well, Libya or something. Carrying Jesus' cross. It's always about where you were from and what tribe you were a part of. It had nothing to do with culture. So I just want to speak this into your life here, okay? An Ethiopian, an African, is a Jew, and he's getting saved, and there's still Ethiopian Jews today, and that was awesome. There was never a problem with this. One of my favorite church theologians, Athanasius, was from northern Africa. More than likely, he was black. I just don't like that, you know, we look at the artwork of the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages of the... um, the Europeans who made everybody white, okay? But that, you, can, you see, and then once you start blaming them for that, then you got to blame everybody else's culture too because they did stupid stuff too. Whenever you see uh, uh, your, your heroes, you're going to see them looking like you, you know? So it's not like the African people were worshiping, you know, a person that was white. So the white Europeans are going to worship a white Jesus. And the black, uh, you know, people at this time, maybe they're pagan, are going to worship their black ancestors. And you're going to, uh, uh, the, the Zora, Zoroastrians are going to worship somebody that looks just like them. You get what I'm saying? In the Chinese gods, they look just like the Chinese. And so it's not like the white people were so crazy in doing that. They, they were wrong for doing it, but no more wrong than everybody else in every other culture making gods to look like them. That's Whoa, spot on with that. I hardly ever get that. Can I get a 10 spot back? I earned some points on that. Man, Bible geographic, uh, ge- geography came back on that one. Okay, Libya, Cyrene. So it was never a problem. Now watch this right here. I just want to say this to all my African-American friends and family members here, I guess, you know, because uh, I consider you like family, sister soldier, is what we see here is that skin color had nothing to do with his faith. He was a Jew probably because of the... Um, the Moses situation, and then, I mean, just, you know, just think through it. I mean, the Bible, you know, it's a Bible is a short book. When you think about it, it contains, what, 6,000 years of human history. You know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is bigger than that, you know. So just use your imagination sometimes within context. When he marries, when Moses marries the Ethiopian, probably her family comes, the brother comes, you know what I'm saying? They, they start having relationships now with Ethiopia. Ethiopians start converting to Judaism. That's now where they start becoming Jews. And so there was a 
a group of Jews in Ethiopia, and there still is today. And so one's coming here to worship. He's loving Jesus. And now this man, Philip, who, by the way, we don't know what color he is. Could, could he have been a person of dark skin? Could he have been a person of light skin? We don't know. It doesn't even matter. We don't know. We know their regions, but sometimes people could be in different regions and have different colors. You know, there's people from the Philippines now that live in Abu Dhabi because there's jobs in Abu Dhabi. So there's Asians in Middle East, right? There's Africans in all parts of the world now. And uh, by the way, uh, sadly, talking about Libya again, right now is on the news because they're slave trading again. They're back to slave trading because sinners sin, right? Sinners sin. It's just, and everybody's so mind blown about it, but it's like, come on. It was, it was the attempt of some wrong liberal-minded people. I say liberal just to, give, to paint with some kind of a brush here that tried to get us all uh, thinking again that whites were the only ones that were crazy in the world, you know? And I just think sometimes we just all got to take a deep breath and go, every single one of our cultures can sin and do stupid things if you let us do it. If you take away the law or you take away righteousness, you know what I'm saying? Greeks enslaved each other. The Vikings enslaved each other. The Aztecs enslaved each other. Tomorrow, uh, next week, tomorrow it's always, you know, Sunday, Monday, or Saturday, Sunday, or Monday in my calendar. So tomorrow... uh, uh, next Sunday, I'm going to be teaching on uh, the new humanity. And, and I'm going to start off with that real sassy story again. Imagine if we go to Rome and I go, hey, manja, pizza, pizza, let's hang out. Dude, I'm getting set on fire. You understand? We, we go to the Aztec. You know, we wear our beautiful colors. You're getting your heart ripped out. You understand? We, we go to the Vikings. What's going on? They're tearing out his beard and filleting him. Dude, they're skinning him. You understand, like we're all dying. None of our cultures accept Jesus. It's, it's just think of it now. Does the American culture love Jesus? You know, it's no, it's obvious. It's not about the culture. It's about kingdom culture. It's not about man. You had no more to do with the melanoma of your skin than I did. It's nothing to do with that. The kingdom of God is within. It's in your heart. Okay, and it's for those who choose it. And we become one nation with the Jewish people. That's why he says we get engrafted into them. And so I literally believe, whether it's uh, Moses marrying the Ethiopian or all the different nations they messed up with and started sinning and having babies with, uh, I literally believe by the time of Jesus, you would have had this entire room and skin color and look and everything in those disciples. I just totally believe, I I believe it was like that because there's no way to get around what the cultures were of that time. And, And when you study it, you just study Roman history, you see that that's the way it was. Uh, you know, and Egypt was another place that had a lot of different cultures come in and be rulers there. And we know that they were in Egypt for 400 years. African people came up, uh, a, a South African tribal people came up at, at certain times and took over Egypt, and they were in the dynasty, so they were black and African. And then there were other times where the different uh, Middle Eastern dynasties would come in and take them over, and they would look Middle Eastern. You know, so you had Middle Eastern and African in Egypt ruling at different times. That's why you can find, you know, a certain dynasty, and they look just like. Uh, somebody you would see from Africa today. And then you look at another dynasty, and it looks like, uh, you know, somebody in the Middle East today because there was different dynasties. It was a a humongous empire, right? There was only certain groups that could stay homogeneous. Like China, like, stayed homogeneous for a long time. India was, like, homogeneous for a long time. But there was places like Rome. uh, Greece did for a little bit. But there was places like Assyria and Rome and Egypt and Babylon, Persia, who just, just... had cultures galore.
Can I get an amen to that? So I just want to speak to that issue. Then, then Philip ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading the prophet, I, uh, the Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. He said, how can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And this is where we get the idea, Romans, how can they believe unless there's a preacher sent? How can they hear unless someone is sent? And how can, you know what I'm trying to say there. I, Lord, forgive me for, for not quoting that correctly. Let me just read it now because let's honor the word of God. What I never want you guys to do is say blah, 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 or so on and so on. Whenever we talk about the word of God, let us honor it. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and um, Jesus was raised from the, and if you believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, okay? Uh, but that is the wrong spot. Here we go. Verse uh, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Somebody say send. Come on. As it is written, how beautiful are the, fe are the, are the feet of those who bring good news. Stuttering a little bit because I know I'm running late on time. Just a little insight. When you start running late and you try to talk fast, you start stuttering. <sighs> I got nine minutes. I can wrap this bad boy up by God's grace. He says, how can I understand Acts 8 verse 31 unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Isn't that awesome? Now, we may not run into people like that in every day of our life, just reading the Bible, literally waiting for someone to explain it to them. But I've had situations like this, and sadly, I haven't always taken advantage of them. This one that comes to my mind is just, it's a sad one too, man, because I just, I can't believe how God just set me up. But I was so focused on my own thing. I was just a little busybody, and it was my day off, and I was fishing, and I just, I just didn't get it. But once it was all over, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I missed it. And here it is. I'm walking away, literally with my bucket and my fishing rods down the path at the lake, uh, you know, where they, the, the lake comes, you know, and they have all the, whatever you call that area, where it's concrete, the lakefront, the dock, yeah, like the dock area. People can walk there, can come down there with their bikes. And literally as I'm walking, there are two girls walking right in front of me that kind of just cut over, you know, they're doing their thing. And this is literally what they're saying. Yeah, did you see the Da Vinci Code? Oh, man, that confused me so much. I had no idea what was going on. You know, I, I didn't think that that stuff was true, but I don't know. Literally, two girls were talking about the Da Vinci Code right in front of me. All I had to do was be like, man, come on, let's talk about this. I heard you guys saying something about the Da Vinci Code. Can I tell you that that's make-believe? That's no different than you watching Superman or something. You know, this is what the Bible says. But I missed that opportunity. Be open for divine encounters. Amen. So he invites him in. He sits down with him. The passage of Scripture that the eunuch was reading, and the eunuch was somebody that was castrated for the sake of serving someone. Uh, in this sense, it was him serving the queen. Sometimes uh, uh, some scholars believe that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, uh, were um, uh, eunuchs as well. Uh, well. Not circumcised, but castrated, you know. So this is something they did back in the day. Uh, Ethiopian tradition. It's not a biblical tradition. It's a pagan tradition. And so he says, this is what I'm reading. Uh, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In this humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Where does that come from? Where does that quote come from? 
Isaiah 53, so close, and it's right up there if you were following along in my notes. Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? That's a great question. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. This gives us an insight, as I've mentioned before. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the men. He's teaching them the Scripture. Jesus was with them for almost four, uh, 50 days. What is he doing? He's doing Bible studies. These men knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophecies. They knew how they pointed to Jesus. They could use the Old Testament. The New Testament's not even written yet. They could use the Old Testament as their Bible and show Jesus. Could you do that today? Could you, could you talk to a Jew and explain to them Isaiah 53 and how Jesus is the Messiah? Could you show the other prophecies of the Old Testament? That's a, that's a thing you need to learn to do. Understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament was the New Testament believer's Bible. And it says right here, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Now verse 37, missing in your Bible, in the NIV, then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Notice, not sprinkling. Even some people teach to baptize adults with sprinkling, like the Episcopalian, I believe. Uh, that is not true. It's immersion baptism. They went into the water. Okay? And that's when it says, when he came up out of the water, with John, uh, Jesus, as he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit came upon him. When they came up out of the water, oh, excuse me, right here. When they came, I don't we're going to see, look in Luke chapter uh, 3, when Jesus gets baptized and see if he comes up out of the water too. Uh, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. Boom, he's uh, beam me up, Scotty, to another place. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus, traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Okay. Now I need to address to you here, I think that's a great reading of the story. Most of you get it, right? I don't think I need to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, Philip is preaching. God then tells him to go to another city. He sees a guy riding in a chariot. He overhears him reading the Bible. He gets in there. He says, you know what's going on. He says, I don't unless somebody explains it to me. Philip then explains to him that while he's reading Isaiah 53, it's about Jesus. Then he preaches the gospel to him. Must have told him about being baptized. Excuse me. The eunuch says, hey, let's get baptized. Uh, I want to get baptized right now. Let's do it. They hop out. He gets baptized, and then God literally translates him to the next place. A, a taste of what's going to happen at the resurrection from the dead when we all go meet Jesus in the air, uh, the rapture. This happened with uh, Elijah on a chariot of fire and with Enoch. This is possible. If, if most of the things man can imagine in, in science fiction are possible with CGI, trust me, it's possible with God. There are not logical contradictions here. It's just a higher power of knowledge than we understand. But God is supernatural, and he created natural things. He doesn't defy logic. He doesn't even necessarily defy nature. He just puts nature on a higher level. Uh, we're not defying nature when we make electricity because, you know, electricity comes naturally through uh, lightning and so forth. We're just manipulating uh, natural forces that other people didn't know how to do. I believe God knows how to manipulate nature in his own way for his own glory. Okay? That's called the epistemic view uh, of miracles. I don't believe miracles necessarily even suspend natural laws. I believe it's a higher law within nature that God built in, but that's another discussion. Does it say in Luke he came out of the water? Okay, when does it say the dove came upon him? 
Okay. Do you see the references to where else that is found? Okay. What scripture is that? Luke chapter 3, verse what? Okay, 21. And I'll just look right here. Mark 3, 13. And as soon as he was baptized, he went up out of the water. There we go. Up out of the water. Mark uh, 3.16. This confirms, once again, the immersion baptism. And here it says they came out of it as well. And Acts. Okay. Quickly, let me go through this. Why is verse 37 missing in your Bible? And I have, what, uh, four minutes here. Okay. When you look at Wikipedia, it's a good place to start. It's a free encyclopedia. This is what they say, Acts 8.37. The reason is the earliest Greek manuscript, E-A and E-2, they have these weird names, of the New Testament to include this verse dates from the late 6th or early 7th century, and it is only found in Western witness to the text with many minor variations. The majority of Greek manuscripts copied after 600 A.D. and the majority of translations made after 600 A.D. do not include the verse. When we talk about the eclectic text, we're talking about looking at all of the witnesses of text that we have and making decisions on what goes into the Bible and what doesn't. When we do it that way, scriptures start getting taken out because they don't have the kind of witnesses we would like them to see, like the woman caught in adultery. It's not in the earliest of manuscripts, the longer ending of Mark, uh, this verse here. Remember I told you before, it's never that we're missing parts of the Bible. It's just that we have too much, according to some. Instead of having a puzzle with 100 pieces, only having 90, we have 120 pieces. Now, those who believe in the eclectic text believe this is because Sometimes well-meaning scribes wanted to add church tradition or things that would be passed around into these stories, like the woman caught in adultery. They wanted to add it to this story, uh, add it to the book of John. It's also added to the book of Luke, okay? Uh, they want to add this confession to, of Philip here that he actually believes and he confesses Jesus. And so this becomes in our text. That's one way of looking at it. That's not, however, the way I look at it. I believe that's helpful. I believe that teaches us great things about manuscripts. But that is not how I believe God preserved his word. Because then there would be some confusion. We wouldn't really know then, would we? Is it or isn't it? Now, there's no doctrine changed by these things. It's never like Jesus is not God somewhere. No. The idea is, how do these things get in there and how do we choose them? Well, I believe that God used the church to show us what was the word of God because the church was always around. So we see that, um, let me just read what I have here. The tradition of the confession was current in the time of Irenaeus, as it's cited by him in 180, and Cyprian in 250. For although in the Acts of the Apostles, the eunuch is described as at once being baptized by Philip because I believed he believed with his whole heart. This is not a fair parallel, for he was a Jew, and he had come from the temple of the Lord. He was reading the prophet Isaiah, Cyprian, that's what he says. And it's found in the old Latin, 2nd and 3rd century, in the Vulgate, 380 to 400. In his notes, Erasmus says that he took this reading from the margin of, a, of 4 AP and incorporated it into the Texas Receptus, which is the church traditional text of the King James, okay? And uh, this person, J.A. Alexander, in 1857, suggested that the verse, though genuine, was admitted by many scribes as unfriendly to the practice of delaying baptism, which had become fairly common, if not prevalent, before the end of the third century. So what do I see here? I see that early church fathers, people like Cyprian and people like Irenaeus, are actually quoting this passage. So what should I do? Should I look at the manuscripts where it's missing and say, well, somebody just added it in? 
or, and then take it out now of our Bible, or do I look at the church fathers and I say, they were talking about it, quoting it literally that Philip had baptized him after he made the confession, I believe with my whole heart, and then say, some of the manuscripts must have it missing because Irenaeus had it in his Bible. So what do I trust? Here's what it comes down to. It's A or B. Do I trust the work of modern scholars trying to piece together the Bible, or do I trust the church and its history? Okay? And so is it going to matter in the long run uh, whether or not you're saved or a good Christian or not? No. But I do believe it's going to give you a strong sense of faith for you to trust the church in its transmission of the Scriptures. Though there were times where things were changed, the church made sure to keep the right things in there. Now, don't go down in your mind, down a road that if this changed, then maybe something else changed. It's impossible for that to happen. Let me explain to you. When you have people like, say, in Egypt, the Coptics getting the scriptures, and you have people in Rome getting the scriptures, there's no way they both could have changed it and then one of us not find out. Because let's say in Egypt, they go, I don't like Jesus being God. I'm going to take out all these scriptures. And then the other one in Rome says, I'm going to put in God. What's going to happen when we dig up these manuscripts? They never met each other. Do you understand? We're not going to see. It's obvious. Like, oh my goodness, you have now Jesus sleeping with Mary, he got three baby kids, he's not got, you know, you're going to see this whole story. No. What do you only see? You only see things like this. You only see these minor little differences of stories because, once again, it's either there, and the, and the puzzle piece is 120, and we're just keep saying, you know, the modern scholars are saying it's 100 because some of the manuscripts have certain things missing, or it's a hundred-piece manuscript, a hundred-piece puzzle, and some scribes added things. I just choose, here's, here's my thing, let me give it to you again as an A or a B. It's either a hundred-piece puzzle with 20 extra pieces that scribes put in that just happen to be backed up by church history, or it's a hundred and twenty puzzle piece that some manuscripts have pieces missing. Do you get it? Because we have manuscripts with the entire Bible as the church has it, like in the King James, that Texas Receptus. We have manuscripts like that, right? And the, and the issue is, am I going to call it a 100-piece puzzle piece with some additions that I need to sort out by myself, which there's no way to know. There's no way to know in this way what is actually there. We would have to say we don't know, but we know we have the Word of God. We just don't know every single verse if it's in the Word of God. We know we have the Word of God, but is verse 37 in or out? We have to guess on modern scholarship. It's just a guess. This, and that's why I'm saying they name them. Well, this one has it, and this one has it, but this one does have it, but this one doesn't. The majority here, you know, I, I like to trust the... Um, the, the church history. I like to go back and say, do these guys know about this? Do I see it in their writings? Do I see that these, these are the texts that they have, like the Latin Vulgate was one of the main ones that was handed down? I see that, and I can be confident. But once again, if we took all these, uh, these 20, let's say 20 uh, disputed passages, there is not one core doctrine that has changed, not one core doctrine. And like I said, it's not like Jesus starts having sex. I mean, you just read it right there. I mean, you just read one of the disputed passages. It's verse 37. NIV says, we're not sure. We'll put it down in your footnotes, right? You probably see a note in your guys' Bible that says it's in your footnotes. That's it. And what is, what, what is the disputed text? The guy says, I'm going to worship Satan now. No, it's him actually making a confession. I love Jesus. But 
some people think, well, maybe that was just added in by a scribe because that was a tradition that the eunuch said, I love Jesus. But it wasn't in the text, but we all know that he did that because Philip told us he did that. But he didn't, you know, Luke didn't write it down. So eventually that becomes added in somewhere, right? That's all it is. That's literally all it is. It's never once, trust me, I've looked at all of them. Sometimes I forget them, but I believe I've looked at every single one of them. It's never an issue. It's just, oh, yeah, okay. I get it. But I, I have gone back and forth on this. There's times where I've thought the eclectic texts and what we mean by eclectic. You know, you look at a person who's eclectic. Their house is very artistic with a lot of different things all over the place and colors. That's what you mean. That's what we mean by this. Kind of eclectic is like the idea that it's a piece together. The ecclesiastical is where we get the word ecclesia from, ecclesia, the, the church. Does the church tell us through history which text it is. So it's like, it's like, what Bible did Irenaeus use? What Bible did Cyprian use as they're translating it? What Bible did our church fathers use? And I've gone way too late. Father, uh, you ready to shut things down? Good, sir. Thank you. Father, thank you for today. Help us not to leave confused, but trust in your word and to preach it as Philip did with signs and wonders following. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's